In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew, we learn of an ongoing investigation of Jesus in a string of confrontations in Jerusalem between Jesus and various religious leaders, one in which his investigators are attempting to trap him and therefore discredit him because they believe that he is misleading the people. His investigators, with all the expertise and finesse, work in teams, in tag-team fashion. First, the Pharisees. They probed the question about the ethics of paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus answered them with the instructor, instruction to render to Caesar that which is due him, and to God the things that are God's. The Pharisees are silenced. Then the Sadducees step up with an inquiry about marriage and the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection and wanted to show that this belief was wrong. So they questioned Jesus about a widow marrying seven men and which man then would be her husband in the resurrection. Jesus answers, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The Sadducees are silenced. But the investigation does not end there. In our gospel reading this morning, the Pharisees try once again to trap and discredit Jesus. Now the requirements of the law are immense, with many individual laws to keep the devout from straying away, uh, from straying the way of righteousness. Which one rises to the top? And maybe, if the Pharisees think Jesus answers incorrectly, they can attack him. Hence, a lawyer who is an expert in the law of Moses asks this question: Teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? In response, Jesus' words do not shrink what God has commanded, but rather he takes us to the center and to the source of the law, the first commandment. Jesus preaches the first commandment when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The Pharisees wanted to be righteous before God. This is why they asked the question. But Jesus' answer complicates the matter. You see, the first commandment doesn't just require you to put God first in your life as though he were one more priority to organize albeit the most important one, one more item to fit in an already swollen list of things to be attended to, in a world that seems to pull its inhabitants in a hundred different directions. No, 
in this commandment, God requires that we completely surrender our entire will to the will of God so that we can form our reason, our will, our might and power and say at all times from the heart, Thy will be done. Remember the catechism's first, um, the, the catechism explanation in the first commandment. You are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. No aspect of your life is left out from under His claim. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He moves on to our neighbor and announces the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus stresses that this commandment is like the first one. In fact, the first commandment penetrates what we call the second table of the law, which deals with our neighbor. The claim of God's lordship over the totality of our living, presses on us this command, love your neighbor as yourself. What this love of neighbor entails, you know from the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Now these commandments all require the same thing. Fear, love, honor, obey, and service to God himself. So children, when you honor and serve your parents, you are in fact honoring and serving God. It's a tremendous high calling and privilege. And parents... It's the same thing when you are feeding your children, serving them, loving them, and teaching them, then you are also loving and serving God. This is the way God allows us to honor and to serve Him. He has placed a neighbor in front of us and says, love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, if you love them, our Lord will render it as service to Himself. There is no greater or higher thing or good work than loving your neighbor. This is Jesus' teaching here in this text. But as soon as you think how beautiful it is that God has given you a neighbor to love, that it is a privilege and you serve and love God by loving, uh, by loving your neighbor, it doesn't take very long to see how frequently and seriously we have failed at this. It means every time you have sinned against your spouse or your children or your boss, you in fact have really sinned against God. If you have no ignored them, then you have ignored God. If you have hurt them, then you have hurt God. If you have neglected them, then you have neglected God. If you have put yourself before them, 
then you have put yourself before God. And this is the point that the Pharisees miss in the Scripture. You see, they are searching the Scripture to find out what gives life, what gives salvation. But they do so incorrectly. They believe that the law is on them. This is what I have to do to earn eternal life. But human nature alone will never be able to completely accomplish what God in these commandments require. However, the Pharisees aren't able to find a real fault with Jesus' answer. So, they're silent. They don't investigate Jesus anymore. But this investigation isn't over. No, now the interviewee becomes the interviewer. You see, the tables are now turned. Jesus now asks the questions. But the questions are not what the scriptures require of man. They are about what the scriptures reveal about Christ. And thus Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? When Jesus asks them this question, you see, it's not about what they can do for God, but what God has done for them in Christ. Whose son is he? Jesus asks. The Pharisees give a textbook answer. They say, the son of David. Jesus didn't know that they would get that right. But this was only partially true. So then Jesus presses on them, them with this messianic riddle. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Christ, Lord, saying this, the Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, the Son, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Christ Lord, how is he his son? You see here Jesus is using Old Testament scripture, in particular Psalm 110, to prove that David himself knew that the Messiah, flesh and blood, human being, would come from his lineage. David knew that the Christ would be both man and God. This is why David, by the Holy Spirit, really calls Jesus Lord. You see, Psalm 110 is written by David and is about the Messiah. David calls the Messiah, my Lord. How could this be? How could David have the Messiah both as his son and his Lord. Well, the Pharisees are once again silent. They can't muster an answer in the face of Jesus, who is both David's son and Lord. The only answer that makes sense of this text is that the Messiah is both man, the son of David, and God, David's Lord. And you see, this teaching is at the very heart of the Christian confession. Who 
is Jesus. Now we rejoice this morning to be given the answer by our Lord himself. So really, what has Jesus done here with this question? You see, Jesus moved from the first part of the catechism, the Ten Commandments, to the second chief part of the catechism, the creed. The creed is the gospel. It is not about what you have done or failed to do. No, the creed is about what God has done and what he is doing for you. This is what's so beautiful here. Dr. Kurt Marquardt, former professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, who is now in heaven with our Lord, said it this way. To the Pharisees asking the question about the greatest commandment raised the ultimate issue. But the Savior surprised them by posing a question of his own about the Messiah. This truly central question cuts to the heart of the gospel. And on this matter, man's fate before God really hinges. On the matter of the gospel, not the keeping of the law. Yes, by the gospel, God has made you his neighbor. It is a pure gift. And he has done this by becoming David's son and David's Lord in one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus took up and assured our humanity into his divinity. Being God, he then became us and became a man. He united our life to his life our fate to his fate, his resurrection to ours. And we confess in the Nicene Creed, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus was made as we are. Thus, he became one of us, and he is our neighbor. Again, the Nicene Creed tells us, for us men, that means all humanity, and for our salvation, the Son of God came down from heaven. What this means is this. Jesus takes upon himself our humanity as the tool for our salvation. Jesus has flesh and blood as we have. But his flesh is flesh that is pierced with nails, blood that is poured out on the cross. Jesus unites our humanity to his divinity so that he faces death and the wrath of God in our place. Even though we have sinned against our spouse, our children, our boss, and therefore, ultimately sin against God, deserving nothing but his wrath and punishment, we are absolved because of Christ, who paid the ultimate penalty for our sin 
in order to make satisfaction to God. And because of this, do what you're given to do. This is love the neighbor. God gives us callings by vocations by which we serve our neighbor. This is God's gracious and good will for our lives. That Jesus is both God and man is at the very heart of the gospel. If Jesus were not both God and man, then there would be no cross and no salvation. In love for his neighbor, Jesus takes a human nature, so he suffers and dies for us. On that cross, Jesus loved his neighbor more than himself by sacrificing his life. That by his blood, his neighbor, and that means you, might have life in his name. In his obedient life and by his atoning death, the one who is both David's son and Lord has become your Lord. All of it for you and for your salvation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.